At a business school, it can be easy to get wrapped up in trying to find the bottom line. But could there be more to life than this? How can incorporating the arts and humanities help us, students, connect, communicate, and create effective change as we enter the real world? In this episode of Thoughtbox, I sit down with Professor David Purdy to discuss these issues. So today we're with David Purdy, Clinical Associate Professor of Management Communication at Stern, and you've worked as a financial analyst, planner, investor relations manager, and consultant in financial services, but you've also had extensive experience in the arts. So can you talk a little bit about both of those experiences and why specifically you decided to pursue the art industry after having such a large background in finance? Yeah, I actually started out in the arts. So um, I, when I was 16, I didn't know what to do. I went to my father, who had founded a small bank, and said, Dad, what, what should I do? And surprisingly enough, he said, son, do what you love. <laughs> and at 16, I didn't know what I loved other than I loved to sing in the choir. So I got an undergraduate degree in classical music. And um, couldn't figure out how to pay the bills. So panicked and went into finance for 25 years, getting my MBA on the way. Mm-hmm. So, um, and then I hit a wall in my mid-30s where it's like, hey, I need more creative stuff in my life. So I stupidly quit my, in, uh, my investor relations job, which paid really well, traveled around the world, stayed in all the most expensive hotels, <laughs> huge unlimited expense account. And I said, nah. <laughs> So I went to conservatory and studied classical acting for three years. Yeah. And um, I couldn't figure out how to pay the bills with that. I, and and so I went back and I became a consultant and I did a lot of other businessy things that trying to combine the two. The two. And the the um, the reason that I think I'm compelled to do both creative things and. No, I don't want to set up that. Uh, <laughs> that, that, that uh, we are at a opposition. business school. <laughs> <laughs> really, no, but you know, purely creative endeavors, let's say, versus um, uh, bottom line oriented endeavors that can have creativity in them. Yeah, but um, is because my mother was an artist and my father was a banker, and so I saw all the wonderful things she did. And I saw the money that he made, <laughs> and how, and and the irony here is that each of them really needed what the other knew. They didn't know how to speak the same language. Interesting. So you were the translator. I don't like thinking of it that way because that makes me feel like I failed. (laughs) So whatever the truth is aside, Mm -hmm. um, a little bit, I guess. And it sounds like from your experience, you tried living, you know, like within these two different worlds or pursuing paths, but like, you know, you also had to juggle kind of like one or the other, you know, like once you were in one field, you were like, oh, this isn't good. Like I need the other field in my life. But right. then once you enter that, you realize you also need the other. Well, I mean, you know, the my uh, partner always says she she um, 
she has uh, she's a consultant now she's independent but she used to work at McKinsey and then mm-hmm. she was at PwC before and she's a trained dancer a classically trained dancer so she always said here's the model you're an artist great you better get a damn day job and that's exactly what she did so she had her job uh, in consulting world and then at night she produced um, dances and when I first met her in uh, 2012 we're about to celebrate our 10th anniversary congratulations <laughs> she was putting on a show at Judson Judson Church which is one block over from here oh wow which has been a venue for progressive um, dance performances and lots of other things as well for decades and decades and decades so she would put on these shows and it would cost her thousands of dollars to put on the show and and she would never she'd make a fraction of it back in in, uh, in tickets so you had to have the day job so I think you know when when I panicked after getting out of, uh, out of you know in the late 70s the economy went into the dumper mm-hmm. and so I panicked and went into finance got a job as a management trainee at a finance company and um, then the economy just went into the toilet so that, you know, I, I was among 14 people at this office. When I started, uh, by the time I left, there were four people left, and I was the manager of the uh, branch. So the economy was just sucking wind. I mean, it just was... And so at that time, my, my, then, my then wife um, was getting her law degree at UVA. Oh, wow. And so I went off to my day job. And frankly, at that time, I couldn't even have a hobby of music because in UVA, it's a relatively small town. Um, you know, lovely town, but, but smallish. And so all I did was work, and that really sucked. So I said, okay, fine. You have your law degree. I want to get my MBA. Came back to to DC, went to University of Maryland, and worked on my MBA, basically part time because I got a gig and, and that was really good. While I was there, I was able to pick up a hobby, which was singing, at the National Cathedral in in Washington, mm. which is a spectacular. You know, it's the it's the National Cathedral of the United it's States. It's Washington, yeah. And um, it was really tremendous and then I realized wait a minute you know I love singing in a choir it's like being part of something larger than yourself where your ego boundaries drop and you just become something you know something alive and trend almost transcendent um, and so that was thrilling, but you know what? At that point, I, I, I said, you know, I'd like to sing some damn solos. <laughs> Excuse me. I, I, I would like to sing some solos. And so what I ended up doing was getting involved in musical theater uh-huh. as an amateur. And I did that for years until I said, you know, I'm not getting any younger. By then I was in my middle, mid-30s. And I said, well, shoot. If I'm going to have a hope in hell of having a career, uh, I'm going to quit my job, 
go study in conservatory for three years at the Studio Theater Conservatory in Washington and do acting gigs. And so that's what I did. And that's where I, you know, traveled from business world to art into pure, pure art to the extent musical theater is pure art. Um, and it was great, but unbelievably hard. It's like the hardest thing that I ever did. How do you, why do you say it was so hard? On what it's, aspects? It's, you know, put it, put it this way. My mother was very, these are not gender stereotypes. They're just describing the truth. Mm. My mother was very emotional and my father was very stoic. And uh, I tended to model myself after my father. So in business, it's like, oh, I'm just doing business. This is not about emotions. This is about the bottom line. And then when I went into the arts, it was sort of like, oh, here's a, a chance to really experience my emotions. And it's not about the bottom line. It better not be about the bottom line because it is hard to pay the bills yeah. as an actor. And so uh, I did that for three years, and I starved. I mean, it was just I made very little. One day I got a um, what we call an industrial um, video, which is you work for some company that hires you to do a training film or something like that. And indeed, the Mortgage Bankers Association hired me to, pl to play a mortgage banker. I had been in the mortgage business. So they paid me a small fraction of what I had been paid to be a mortgage banker to pretend to, to be, be a, a mortgage, mortgage banker. banker. <laughs> That's a mouthful right there. Yeah, right, exactly. And so it was, you know, I, I couldn't help but sit there and go, gee, this really sucks. And literally getting paid like a tenth, and a, a tenth of what I was getting paid. I mean, it was just... Just crazy, yeah. crazy nuts, no money. And uh, as the, the person, Joy Zinneman, who ran the Studio Theater Conservatory said, you got to do this because you, you can't do anything else. You have to do this. And looking back on it, I didn't have to do it. Uh, the truth is it's taken me all these years to see that both those experiences of business and the arts pointed me in different directions and I never figured out how to combine them. Have you found the answer? Yes. And what is it? Could you share it? Could you share the secret sauce? Well, it's funny because I mentioned my mother being emotional, my father being stoic. What I've learned in my subsequent study of neuroscience and social and, um, and cognitive psychology is that we're always thinking and we're always feeling. Back in the day, men used to be over-rewarded for just thinking. You know, bottom line. Story. Business. Like my, yeah, business. My father, born in 1923, so back in the old days, okay. And my mother was, you know, a, uh, a housewife, and she raised the kids, and it's like caring, emotional yeah. presence. So my mind was completely blown when I came to academia and trying to help people with their ability to connect, communicate, and collaborate. You start to study the, the, the psychology, 
and even the hardwiring in terms of the neuroscience and the aesthetic neuroscience and the effective neuroscience of, of feeling, uh, what you discover is we're always thinking and we're always feeling the secret sauce is to figure out how that works in your life. It's very open-ended. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it is open-ended. It's open-ended for me at this, you know, I'm 60, I'm going on 66 years old, which in itself blows my mind. By the way, this stuff goes by really fast. This, these oh, no. years. Yeah, and I know your parents have told you that, right? Um, but it's as bad as you can imagine. I'm shocked to be this old. It's like deeply weird. <laughs> um, but um, it really is sort of a lifelong uh, challenge. It takes a long time to figure out, okay, what of these feelings are informing me of what's really going on at a given moment? And, and what are these thoughts... Um, and how do those things combine in a way to be both accurate so that it's as close to the truth as you can get, but also passionate. So I believe in this set of facts. It's not just a cold, dead spreadsheet of numbers. Yeah. Rather, it's uh, a story that rises up from what we think and what we feel. Uh, humans are, as Jonathan Haidt, from, as a social psychologist from Stern, says we're storytelling animals. And what I take him to mean from that, and others have made the same point, is that we understand reality by um, understanding the facts and then as many as we can get. But then, what of those facts feels important? What of those facts feel right? And in what combinations of thoughts and feelings do you get a story that's going to help you thrive in a way that earns trust of people around you? So now that you've kind of discovered this, and it took a lot of like you know a lot of your experiences and if you could go back knowing this now oh, and like God. going to like your business career and and etc you know how would you create this meaningful change that you talk about i you know i i think of my relationship with my father and how we used to debate about politics and we debate about business and we would get all caught in our heads I would find a way of um, asking my father to share his heart in a way so that I could learn from his experience of how what he thought and what he felt worked together to create a, uh, an effective and worthy and meaningful life. He co-founded this savings bank in the suburbs of Philadelphia with my uncle in the late 40s, and he ran it for like 60 years. Wow. I know. And indeed, the uh, year that I moved him out of his, he was he had given up the presidency and taken the chairmanship. And I moved him out of his office when he was 84 or 85, and I remember thinking, 
I know he's not going to be around much longer because he lived to work. So I learned to talk about business, ironically, because that's how I got my father's attention, frankly. Mm-hmm. And so we could talk about, and here I am in business communication. Yeah. Um, and uh, so in answer to your question again, though, it, it's about integrating those feelings of what's important and what's valuable and what's meaningful in, in a career or in a life that I would have loved to have had that conversation with him. And um, conversely, with my mother, who was an artist, she became a, um, an oil painter mm-hmm. during my years in college. And um, she died relatively young. Um, and to this day, I, I, I speak to artists, I speak to musicians, actors, and so on, in terms of, how do I pay the bills? And I, st- I still don't have that answer. I think the best answer I've got is be an artist with a day, with a day job. And that's, so- <laughs> it's, it, it's not a satisfying answer. There's a, I mean, let, let's face it, look, the, the truth is that, uh, who, was it the Buddhist who said uh, to live is to struggle? Was that, I forget. I cannot tell yeah. you. It, it, somebody, somebody like that, like Siddhartha, you know, <laughs> um, who said who who said that, and the trick is to practice a little bit of non-attachment, just a little bit, so that when you have to work longer than you thought you had to do, when people don't come and see your show, when the trials of life rise up, that you can take a good deep breath. And not just get lost in the in the strife mm. that can rise up from just being alive. And I've been through a bunch of religions in my life trying to find meaning and purpose. No offense to any religions. Um, and what I always say at this point is, if you've got a new one, please let me know. <laughs> Cryptocurrency can be a little bit of a religion, too. Oh, yeah. I would argue. So, figuring that out. <laughs> but no, that. so right now my work is really combining not only the arts, business best practices, with just I've had a lifelong love of, of science and studying neuroscience and psychology has been um, a hobby of mine for a long time, is to see how all of those things fit together, but they fit together within a sense of not just knowing how things work, but living robustly how things work. Being alive, again, quoting another musical theater number. Um, And I'm learning, but boy, what a slow learner. (laughs) I mean, it's just, but it's good to have it in sight because you, when, when I see the way my parents lived out their lives, I feel like dad never really thrived in his heart. He loved work, but and this is another answer to your question, to bring passion to that work is something, I, I mean, that sounds really presumptive of me and so on, but from my experience of him and being his son for all those years, 
it feels like there was just that sense of meaning and purpose. He, he was a breadwinner back in the day, you know, the old-fashioned formulation. And that was his, if you asked him, I'm sure that's what he would say, but um, he never knew what my mother knew, which was when you got a, when you got a great sunset and it gives you that feeling of timelessness that there's a way to honor and embrace and embody that sense of transcendence, I believe, in my experience. Yeah. That gives, that makes life truly beautiful. So, speaking from that, like, because we're at a business school and, like, you know, like, <laughs> sometimes I feel myself, like, you know, only thinking about work and getting that bottom line. Like, how do you make sure that you don't lose sight of, like, the sunset that you were describing? One thing that I would say is when I, when I first started working at Stern 12 years ago, and I had gotten my, um, my MBA in finance in, the, in 86, in 85, rather. And so it was a long time ago. Business education had changed remarkably when they said, hey, we're having a mindfulness session. What's that? <laughs> what the hell? You're kidding. At a business school? And it was actually supported by a Buddhist organization as part of the predecessor to the um, Leadership Accelerator for MBA students. Mm -hmm. And um, what I found at Stern was an organization that was really, I think, way ahead of the curve. So we were already beyond just serving the shareholders. We were beyond just the bottom line. Right. You know, Friedman's classic <laughs> or nineteen seventy that that every Stern business student has, has read. Um, that we know that business is a, is more of a holistic, uh, stakeholder driven affair where you give you, you you care about more than just the guys who, the the folks who buy your your shares, uh, or your customers. They're about your employees. It's about your neighbors. It's about the communities in which you do your your work. So I found in Stern uh, that that which blew my mind. I said, "Are you kidding?" And then they started to talk about the social impact core that all undergraduate students have to take. Yeah. And to me, it's like, wait a minute. In a bottom line institution where you just give me the present value of the you know of the revenues across uh, multiple scenarios of uh, blah, blah, blah. I used to do four financial Balance sheet, cash flow statement. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> that there's, there's really room for studying like intensely yeah. around your social impact. I thought, oh, this is unbelievable. Um, and then um, after working here a couple of years, they came up with the idea of EQ equals IQ. And it's, and it's like, Holy hell, you're going to, emotions screw everything up. You need to shut them down. The arson business? Well, no way. <laughs> well, that's the way my father, that's what, that's the seed that my father planted in me. And so when I saw this institution actively uh, promoting that IT idea, I yeah. went, well, holy hell. So I started to, um, a decade ago, I started, we, we, in our management communication group, we started an initiative to teach uh, emotional intelligence. 
to every MBA student that started here. And it was a time of real change, and so that didn't last, but that idea Stunk. is still manifest here. Now, uh, uh, now we see uh, a whole world of different uh, folks at Stern who are doing really super interesting stuff. I mentioned Don, Jonathan Haidt with the social psychology and bringing that into um, professional responsibility and so on. Uh, Dolly Chug and her book about uh, becoming the person you, in, you mean to be, overcoming implicit bias. Um, and over the last three years, my colleague from Steinhardt, Dr. Nisha Sajnani and I, have brought a very, what I think is a robust approach to improvisation, a classic theatrical art form, uh, to bring the arts more, um, more immediately into Stern. I am just a part of what I hope will continue to be an upwelling of the use of the arts, a universal human expression, um, to, to further, to, to, to make business, a business life a, a truly robust human. My hope is that we're at an inflection point where the use of the arts as a way of helping people sort of revivify their humanity in tandem with taking care of business, um, that, that we're part of a real change that's going to manifest over the next um, little while. And, and we need to, just because trust and in institution, including business, but also government and other societal institution, has really collapsed. Yeah, especially right now. Right. So I would argue that we need to recreate trustworthy institutions whose story, what they objectively do and what it seems to mean, are worthy and embraceable by a preponderance of, um, of people, hopefully around the world. I love Stern, uh, uh, you know, NYU's global footprint. Bring all the wisdom from all around the world, let's say bring it through this, this pinch point here in New York City, and propagate that new, that new world where, where institutions are more trustworthy because they reflect more of what's deeply true about you and me and every other human. So, I guess last words for us students as we embark on creating this change that you are envisioning. Yeah. Do you have any final advice? Yeah, I'm glad you asked that because I think that you're going to get out of school and you're going to get a job that any other smart student, a lot of other smart students could do. Yeah. And for some people, they'll say, well, I can't fully express myself in this first job, therefore, the hell with this, I'm going up to the mountains. Like Siddhartha went and under the Bodhi tree and found uh, <laughs> transcendence. Um, the truth is that that first job and, and in all the ways that you can't fully express yourself is just a first step. So soak it all in and see what resonates for you and then seek in the next job to get a little bit 
closer in the direction that it, it, it feels like you need to go at this point in your career and, and be greedy. So you might end up working there for two years, five years, ten years. But don't let it be 40 if it doesn't allow you to express enough of yourself. I had a, a, one of my cousin's um, husbands uh, I met the other day, and he said he just retired from IBM after 35 years. And he said, you know, I never was really a corporate kind of guy. And I heard that, and I said, you were at IBM for 35 years. How is that possible? And he really, my heart just leapt out of my chest and fell on the ground and flopped around for a while. <laughs> and so my, my advice is you become a change maker by keeping not just what you think but what you feel in your conscious being and your striving so that and a, little bit of, a little bit of greed, not just for the bottom line, but for being alive. It's, a, it's not a very good Broadway sh uh, song, by the way, so please don't do that as a music underpinning. <laughs> um, so that by the end of your career, instead of saying what my cousin's husband said, you'll be able to say, you know, this is a job that only I could have done because I constantly changed, it. changed and changed and changed and learned and learned and learned in order to go further in the direction of true, as Maslow said, true uh, self-actualization. And um, to, to, by the way, there are two versions of Maslow's um, hierarchy of need. The second one is much less often quoted, which he published later in his career, where the pinnacle wasn't just self-actualization, it was transcendence. So to be alive, not just in head and heart, but in soul, this is not a religion. <laughs> but when people believe in something, they'll be more ready to change what needs to be changed. And so to have that rich and robust a sense of purpose can make you uh, a real change maker, an agent of change. So you mentioned the whole greed aspect of things. Yeah. So for you, have you been able to, I guess, now kind of navigate still the two? Or you, do you think it's possible to pursue one without the other? Uh, well, it certainly is possible. I, I think that, um, you know, all the everybody always says the same thing about greed. If you just go for the greed, you're going to end up with a situation where he who, he who dies with the most toys wins. And that's clearly an empty ex existence. But have greed for experience, for connection with other humans, for opportunities to learn, for opportunities to put that learning to life with other people is a good kind of greed. Um, and so I think it really, it, it really just um, takes keeping your eyes up and, and um, your heart engaged and pay attention so that you don't go off, spinning off into a world where you just have a lot of stuff, but not a lot of life, real life. 
Well, thank you so much for your time. You know, we, we covered a lot today, but <laughs> it was so great having you. And thank you so much. Thanks very much.